just to sort of in, reintroduce you, I guess, to the theme, the kingdom of God, um, it really is Jesus' preferred way of speaking about even summarising the gospel, uh, that um, the kingdom of God is near, and he talks about the gospel, his message of the kingdom of God, which is near, or which uh, in him had actually come. And we learn from Jesus that there's, there's something like three movements or perspectives on the kingdom. Um, there, there is, on the first hand, God is king. He, he just is. He always has been, always will be. King is a good way to think about the God who made the world and everything in it, who is sovereign and in charge. So God just is. He hasn't gone anywhere. He always will be king. The whole earth is his. So there's, that's the first sort of overarching thing. But there's a few particular payouts, uh, payoffs for that. So the second thing is this, that God's kingdom became real and manifest in a new and particularly obvious way when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he brought a fresh perspective and a real dawning of God's kingdom. Uh, He called for urgent repentance. The kingdom of God is here. And he calls for us to live today as if God in heaven is in fact our Lord and that uh, he will call us to account. Uh, But the third thing is that although uh, God is king all the time, in every place, in every way, and although God's kingdom came in a particular expression uh, and sort of a new dawning with Jesus, uh, there is a third movement still to come when, uh, much like as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, uh, there, is a, there is a time still to come when God's will, be, God's will will be done on earth, uninterrupted, unhindered and unhidden in the same way that it currently is done in heaven. So there's this, there's this coming kingdom, a thing or a time in the future that we can look forward to, um, a, a true and thorough reset, a new era, when God will judge every sin finally and comprehensively, and when he will reveal his full glory uh, to his glorified saints. But that third one is still to come. And in the meantime... Although the first is still true, that God is king, we live within the gap between what we are told is God's heart, uh, that justice will reign, uh, that uh, the vulnerable will be cared for, that tears will be wiped away, This is uh, that sins will be forgiven and uh, men and women will love one another. That's that's what we know to be true of God's heart and, and the end goal. But there is also this reality that sits very much alongside that and surrounds us that evil things happen. Well, I mean, for starters, you don't have to look very far at all. You and I still sin. But then there is, you know, we may, we ought to repent of our sin, but there are those who don't. And there are those who seem to gather steam with every fresh sin and every fresh evil. And Psalm 10 is, is a psalm that articulates that uh, and gives us some help to navigate what it means to live in this world in this, in this time. So Psalm 10 declares, for example, in verse 16, at the, towards the end, it says, The Lord is King forever and ever. So well, it's a good psalm uh, to look at it under this theme of the Kingdom of God. The Lord is King forever and ever. But without a hint of irony or schizophrenia or contradiction 
the writer of the psalm spends most of the time talking about just unabated wickedness in the world. So at the end, after reflecting on wickedness, he's able to say the Lord is king. But it's chaos and mayhem. Although in verse 16 he says the Lord is king forever and ever, he begins in verse 1 by questioning God, almost accusing God of being far away and absent when trouble strikes, as if God might even be the kind of God who would shrink from difficulty. So verse 1 is the beginning. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then in verses 2 to 11 Uh, This picture gets painted of a wicked man who is also powerful and arrogant and without meaningful opposition, who just gathers steam as he goes. And that man seems to prosper, the wicked one. And it's not fair and it feels wrong and it feels almost incompatible with the kind of God who is king and who truly reigns. If anything, it feeds into the idea that, uh, that if God is king... Well, he's one of those fat, lazy kings who barricades himself in from the troubles of the world, builds a great big wall to keep everything that's uncomfortable out and then just lavishes you know, good things on himself. The kind of king who enjoys his own privileges but is unwilling and maybe even afraid to get his own hands dirty. Now, that's not who God is. And it's not even who the psalmist truly believes God to be but it's how the psalmist feels, for a moment at least. And let's at least enjoy that much for a moment. Isn't it fantastic and authentic that in our own holy book, God himself is not above scrutiny? He is pleased to have the raw distress and complaints laid out for our own edification. So before, still before we read Psalm 10, uh, let me give you three short illustrations that more or less capture the guts of the, the, the distress from verses 2 to 11. So I'm going to tell you a few short stories and then we'll read it together and I hope you'll see these stories reflected. I hope it helps. So story number one, there's a lady uh, walking down an isolated street. She's carrying uh, on her, um, her handbag filled with valuables. It's just her on this street and the shadows until a young thief ambushes her and snatches her bag she struggles against him but he's too strong he takes a few ste- he snatches her bag and takes just a few steps away from her until he is just out of her reach but he knows he's faster than her so he can get away if she lunges at him he knows he's stronger than her so he can overpower her if she uh, tries to snatch it back And right in front of her, without a care, he empties her bag, scatters what he doesn't want and takes what he does and goes on his way. There's police in the city who could put a stop to it, but there's none nearby. Verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Story number two, similar to the first one. There's a lady walking down a street. She's got a handbag on her arm filled with her valuables. But this time it's a busy street. There's lots of people in the street. But this time it's not just one young man, who a thief, who attacks her. It's a gang of young thugs who emerge from the crowd and grab her bag. They're too strong and they're too many for her to resist. And even though she cries for help, it's an obvious scene and it's a crowded place, no one nearby has the courage to step in because they're intimidated by the gang 
too. There's so many of them. And, and they've got so much pluck. She even sees in the crowd a policeman in uniform. But what's one policeman going to do against a whole gang? And, he, and that policeman, in fact, hides himself in the crowd until the gang's moved on and then emerges to take a statement. Verse 1, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? As a policeman who's ineffectual, is God like that? Story number three, last one. There's a lady again walking down the street. Uh, She's uh, got a handbag on her arm. It's full of valuables. Uh, Again, we're back in a lonely place. It's just her in the street for now. Nobody in sight. This time, uh, there is another young thief lurking in the shadows who again emerges to snatch her bag. But he's not a common thief. He's actually from a wealthy family. He doesn't steal because he needs the money. He does it for the sport. And he's not afraid of consequences because there's no, there, there are no consequences for him. There never have been. He knows that if, he, uh, if it comes down to her words against his, well, his family lawyers can get him off the hook. It's happened before. His family's power and influence have gotten him out of every single scrape so far. Verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 10 speak of this wicked man. It says, all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. It says the wicked man's thoughts are, well, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. God's judgments are on high, out of his sight. Little things like the law or consequences are meaningless to this man, merely theoretical, on high, sort of out there in the universe, but never actually coming home to roost. So let's read Psalm 10 together. See if you are able to recognise some of those stories and characters. See if you recognise this world uh, uh, and maybe even your own experience. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see 
For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to, to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. It's God's word. Well, I reckon, I hope, uh, of the three stories I told at the start, it's easy for most of us to recognise a truth in them. Uh, in and of themselves, I hope, but particularly in, in light of that psalm. They are the sorts of things that might happen on any day and probably do happen every day. Brazen wickedness and bullying. People who do wrong, who seem to continually prosper from it, even gaining power from it. And not really even feeling the need to hide or justify their wrongdoing, but increasingly boasting about it. Untouchable and untouched. And it's, and it's, just, it's not just on a societal or political scale. Uh, to get even more real for a moment, and maybe you've already gone down this path in, in your mind, you have probably personally fallen victim at some time to an evil remorseless or untouchable person, the kind of person who might never face the music for what they've done to you, the kind of person who may never even privately face the music, might not even privately face their own wrongdoing in their own conscience, might not even consider an apology or a change of their ways, not even think those things are necessary because, you know, it doesn't matter. And if, if it's the case that you've never personally been there, uh, I'm sorry to say there's still time. God may reign, but he makes no bones about the reality of sin and evil in this world that he reigns over. Uh, in light of the reality of evil, in light of the gap that we live in between knowing God and his heart and, and experiencing the world's evil... This psalm is a gift from God. So three simple points I want to make about how this psalm is a gift. Uh, It gives us a prayer, it gives us propositions, and it gives us a prophecy. There's three short points. First of all, it's a prayer. I mean, it's it's what it is. Uh, It is written uh, as a prayer. It is written in the first person addressed to God, which is what prayer is as as we speak to him. Uh, And it is, as I've sort of already alluded to, there is in this prayer permission to speak to God really quite frankly. Isn't there? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? It's it's almost accusing God of something. It's certainly a complaint. There's not a complaints process to get to God. You can speak to him directly. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Gives us a prayer. And in giving us a prayer, it tells us that in trouble, that's what you must do. You must pray. And I know each of us are different when it comes to prayer. Some of us find it easy. Some of us, uh, it's the natural and obvious first thing that we do. It's a daily thing. And that for others of us, it's, it's the last thing that we think of. 
if you're of the latter type of person, then remember to pray. Next time you face trouble, pray. God can hear it. God does hear it. The other thing in this prayer is that it it gives us the words to pray. It, It gives us a script and I know that, uh, that you know, the, the modern Western inclination is to not use scripts for things like prayer because that would make it no longer authentic and no longer from the heart. But read Psalm 10. It, it's authentic. It's real talk, isn't it? Uh, that is from the heart. And what a blessing to be given a script for having real talk with God. Uh, but with that, Uh, a script that gives us guidelines for maintaining respect in that speech. Because yes, God can handle your anger. Uh, You should, in some sense, feel free uh, because of his grace, because of psalms like this, and because God is a big boy and he can handle it. You should, in some sense, feel free to give God your unfiltered, ungarnished feelings, to say it how it is or how you experience it. And know that you won't be judged or punished or thought less of because he knows what's in your heart anyway. So why not pour that, pour what's in your heart out to him? But it's also appropriate to recognise that God is Lord. And so it is right to approach him, even in times of raw pain, with something like a respectful fear. These Psalms give us tram lines to follow as, as, we, as we spill out our heart authentically and respectfully to God and truthfully. Uh, it guides us towards saying towards God things that are true of him um, because otherwise if we just follow our own heart we might be inclined to say things ultimately of God, things that are not true of him. We in our own heart might lead with a prayer that says why are you so far off? Why Do you hide yourself and finish in our prayer even more convinced than ever that God is far off and that he's hidden himself? But these Psalms take us on a journey uh, to recognise and lead us towards saying what is ultimately true of God. God wants uh, and uh, and requires uh, both our authenticity and our respect. Uh, So it's good to have a script, it's good to have a prayer. It's good to have these words that we can turn to. And it's good that it's only Psalm number 10. So if you're ever lost for words and you think, oh, what was that Psalm? You can start at the start of the Psalms and you'll find one uh, that's going to that's gonna meet your needs. Propositions, I said. We're given propositions. That's the second point up there. Proposition, I don't mean like uh, you proposition someone as in you make a proposal, like a pitch. So, you know, if I give you this, then maybe you'll give me that. Uh, a proposition, uh, I mean in the sense that it, it's a simple statement of fact, the kind of thing on which you can hang your hat. Uh, a proposition is a statement of fact. What do we have at our disposal when, when we face things that seem like a tension? You know, okay, God is good, but there is evil. How can God be good when there's evil? Uh, how, can, uh, how can God be good when I suffer? How can God be just when injustice seems to overpower justice? What can we do with those things? Well, to sort of step away from the point there for a moment, we can adopt uh, reason or philosophy. We can think these things through and reason them out. We can try to rationalise the existence of evil. 
Uh, we can use uh, reason and philosophy and theology, by the way, to even draw value from the existence of evil. Okay, so for example, you could say, this isn't in Psalm 10, by the way, but you could say, well, um, uh, from Romans chapter 8, God works for the good of those who love him. So we can go, okay, well, you know, this is why. Try and answer that why question. This is why. Uh, God is trying to work something good from a difficult circumstance. Uh, we can learn as well or, or rationalise that, uh, that maybe we go through trials to improve our character. And so, yes, there's, you know, it, it doesn't ultimately do us harm to experience a bit of short-term pain because we can grow from these experiences. And, and these, things, uh, these things are true, by the way. Uh, it's also a good process to go through. It's great to have things ordered in your mind. It's great to do, you know, rationalising and reason and philosophy, etc. That stuff's all super valuable. But sometimes, and particularly, I would say, in times of acute trial, where you feel like you're suffocating and just under a punishing load, in those times, it's particularly difficult to sort of weed through the muck and find the reason or the rationale for what's coming your way. Uh, it's, a, it's almost impossible uh, to peer through and, and see the light at the end of the tunnel by reason alone. Sometimes it's a relief to dwell with just a small number of simple, straightforward propositions. Sometimes faith requires just a taking hold of a statement that is true that may not in the moment even feel true. So there's a few propositions in, in, Psalm, chapter 10, in Psalm 10. Verse 14. But you do see, it says. Verse 1 starts by saying, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? Verse 14 simply says, without reason... Without philosophy, without any of that, just says, but you do see. It's okay to say, God, why don't you see? Why don't you look? Why don't you pay attention? But don't forget the next part where you have to then also say, but God, I know what is true. You do see. You see everything. You are king. Verse 17 is similar to that. It says, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Remember that simple proposition, God hears. God hears prayers. Doesn't feel like God hears your prayers? That's okay. He does hear your prayers. Just have that thump in your head. God hears. God sees. Verse 18, uh, you will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Gee, it feels like injustice is raising, uh, reigning. It feels like there is no justice. It feels like there's no hope. God will do justice. That is who God is. It is what he is like. And verse 16, of course, it's why we're here in Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever. What a proposition, to use that nerdy word. Uh, what a statement. What a truth to hold in your head whether or not it feels true. The Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord is king forever and ever. I don't know what it is, whether it's uh, maturity or immaturity or backwards or, or what, but when I, when I was a teenager, the thought of having a rationale for everything and a reason for everything was particularly precious to me. It was, it was particularly helpful for me to learn that, oh, the Bible is reasonable. 
It stacks up. It answers questions. It makes sense of things. And, and that to me is still, uh, it's, it's part of what God used to, um, to hold me close uh, in his kingdom and in his family. But more and more, I, I think this might be a progression of faith or something like maturity. More and more, I'm, I'm content to just dwell with the facts and not have to have all the reasons all the time. The Lord is king forever and ever. Doesn't feel like it? He is. Doesn't feel like he's close? He is. Doesn't feel like he sees? He does see. Feels like my prayers are hitting the ceiling? He hears. And sometimes we just have to walk in those things for a time until we can feel the fruit of that faith. Prophecy. This psalm is a prophecy. Now, this psalm is not a prophecy in the way we're inclined to think of prophecy when we uh, read things like Harry Potter or something like that. You know, a prediction of the future. You know, oh, you know, you read Psalm 10 and you go, oh, here's a thing that's going to happen down the track. There's really only one really clear statement of the future. Uh, verse 17, uh, where it says, you will... You will strengthen their heart. You will strengthen the heart of the afflicted. Maybe that's a prophecy of what God will do in the future. But, but much of the Old Testament uh, works prophetically in a slightly different way. What it does is it lays out a bunch of truths that are fulfilled years later in the person of Christ. So Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of Luke, you can read about this yourself, after his death and his resurrection, he is walking on the road uh, with a couple of his disciples who feel all disenchanted because their saviour has gone. And Jesus appears and walks with them and it says uh, that he, um, beginning uh, with the law and the prophets, he told them from the scriptures everything about himself. Jesus used the Old Testament... Not just things about, you know, not just words about, oh, a Messiah will come, uh, a baby will be born of a virgin, etc. But, but all of the scriptures of the Old Testament, the narratives, the laws, the commands, the Psalms, everything that was paving the way for a future arrival of the one who would fulfill them, who would obey them. And so uh, this really is the, an almost essential step in reading the Psalms. And it will help you read the Psalms uh, more appropriately uh, and, uh, and, and less individualistically. Read the Psalm to see where it speaks about Jesus or to see where Jesus' life is reflected in it. And maybe you can't see it exactly in Psalm 10. I mean, it is, after all, mainly about a wicked man. But let me pull out a few things um, that show... Uh, that show how Jesus really is the fulfillment of this. And this is important because, as it says in the book of Hebrews, it says, we do not have a high priest uh, who, uh, and I didn't write this down so I can't remember it exactly, but it's something like, we do, we do not have a high priest who is unfamiliar with our pain, or who is uh, unfamiliar with our suffering. We have one who knows our pain and knows our suffering. And so if we read through Psalm 10 going, gee, here's someone who is poor and afflicted, we could expect to see Jesus, a poor and afflicted man, who nevertheless came to save us and who proves stuff like the Lord is King to be true 
So verse 2. And I'll I'll sort of flash these things up here as we go. Now verse 2, it says uh, in Psalm 10, uh, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And one thing we do know about Jesus is that he was poor. Uh, We know that uh, because um, the... um, uh, when his parents presented him at the temple, they had a couple of options of sacrifices that they could make. Uh, one, if you had enough uh, money, and a couple of doves, if you didn't. And his parents made a couple of a sacrifice of a couple of doves for Jesus. So he's he's from a poor household. And you know, we we read about those early days of Jesus's life. We'll you know we'll do it again this coming Christmas. How you know as an infant. Um, his family was visited by angels. He was visited and, and, and given gifts by, um, uh, by kings. But he was one who was laid in a manger. He was pursued by an arrogant king, Herod, who sought to kill him. He was through his childhood and into his adulthood the victim of all the usual oppressions of his people the Jewish people, under Roman rule, taxation, etc., stuff like that. Verse 3, those who are greedy for, grain, for gain renounces the Lord. Remember the night that Jesus, the night before Jesus was crucified, he was betrayed by one of his own. Greedy for gain, sold him for money. Verse 4 talks about the wicked man who in his thoughts says there is no God. It's reminiscent to me of of the taunts that Jesus suffered on the cross. People said if he is the son of God, God will save him. The implication being he's not the son of God. God's not looking out for him. Verse 5 talks about the wicked man for his foes he puffs at them. You know, someone who uh, is so full of power and wickedness that he's not afraid of his enemies. And you see uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were uh, somewhat afraid of Jesus, but who ended up banding together because they they were the power brokers. They banded together with the other power brokers, the Roman authorities, the governor, to plot Jesus' demise. Powerful and untouchable. The law doesn't touch them. People who are in positions able to silence those who criticise or undermine them. Verse 8 says, again, of the wicked man, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. I can only think of one truly innocent man. And as it happens, he was murdered. Jesus, the innocent one, was murdered. Uh, Although the arrogance and brazenness uh, wasn't hidden in that case, it was on display because they did it openly. They did it even legally by the book. Talks about those in verse 8 whose eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They're laying a trap. They're out to get him. And and we know that Jesus was, um, his enemies often sought to trap him. They lay traps of, you know, uh, tricks of speech and questions to, to catch him out in his words. They wanted him to slip so that they could justify themselves. 
Verse 10, it says, the helpless are crushed. It's very strange to think that Jesus himself was helpless. We know he was crushed. But he was helpless. Not really, but really. He submitted himself to helplessness. He submitted himself to things like fatigue and hunger. He submitted himself to his own enemies. As I said, many times he was told by people, oh, you could save yourself if you really are the son of God. And the irony is that he could save himself because he really was the son of God. But he chose to stay in that space of helplessness. He subjected himself to the authorities and every kind of weakness and injustice. He was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. We don't have a God who's far off at all. In our suffering, in the wickedness of the world, in the shame and sadness, God, our King, he's not a God who's, not a, who's afraid to get his hands dirty. He's a God who meets us and experiences it more than we ever could have asked or expected him to do. Verse 11, the wicked man again says in his heart, God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. He will never see the things I've done. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt forgotten. As if God had turned his face away, we sing in the song. It's good, isn't it? That Jesus uh, is, in many ways, the true fulfilment of this. He is the true. He's the fulfilment of this in that he is. He is the true victim of the oppression, more so than any of you or I could lay claim to. He has suffered so much. He's not a God who's far off. He's not a God who doesn't hear. He's a God who is with us. It says in verse eighteen. 17 and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Man is of the earth. The Lord is king. Man is of the earth. A couple of things just in closing from that. We ought to have confidence that God really is king the Bible says so it is so we can have confidence that uh, he really is king uh, in spite of the evil that we see around around us God's not ashamed of those two things laying side by side whose fault is the evil by the way it's sin that's produced it but God is God himself submitted beneath it to suffer the consequences of it we have someone who is with us in our suffering who is with us in uh, in this life Uh, but uh, and because of that we've got someone to walk alongside of someone to speak to in our prayers and in our pain uh, but someone we can count on who says that uh, he will fight for the fatherless and the oppressed he will produce justice in its time 
So that's one thing. We can have our, our faith, I hope, renewed and restored. And maybe what we need to do uh, in, in the acute moments of grief and difficulty is just hang on to a couple of those, what I called propositions. The Lord is King. He hears. He sees. Hang on to them and find your confidence. Grow in those things that are true. But the second thing, of course, is, uh, is repentance for our own wickedness. Do you see yourself in any of that? Do you see yourself in verse 18 that says that God will do justice so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more? What a frightening thing that we are, we are the ones created from dust. And God is going to come and he will sweep away the sin of the earth. And if not for being forgiven for our sins, well, we, we would be the wicked swept up in that as well, in his wrath, and rightfully so. So repent of your sin as well. Turn uh, in faith and repentance to him. Let's pray. Dear God, you are Lord, you are King. Help us to hang our hats and build our lives on those truths. You are king forever and ever. You see us. You hear us. You will strengthen the hearts of the oppressed. We are of the earth. Uh, in your image, made in your image, but subject to you. But you are king in heaven. And may we build our faith and may you feed our faith on who you are and what you promise. And Father, we pray also uh, that you will lead us to ongoing repentance so that uh, we can have our sins forgiven, so that we can uh, not be swept away with the other dust of the earth, uh, but we might be raised to life uh, with your Son when he comes. Amen.